Live from WNUR News, I'm Daniel Gross. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1 Evanston, Chicago. It's Monday, November 6, 2023. Tonight on WNUR News, a look at an indigenous short film festival. Dayglow, Justin Sky, DJ Kavi rule Welsh Rhine Arena at A&O Blowout 2023. A history of history, an investigation into Northwestern's archive. And B-List. Those stories coming up tonight on WNUR News at 6. Thanks for tuning in. Grab some popcorn. Yesterday, the First Nations Film Festival showcased indigenous-directed short films. Erica Schmidt takes the story. Yesterday, the First Nations Film Festival took place at Robert Crown Library. For an hour and a half, several Evanston residents and community members sat down to watch seven short films, all created by Indigenous persons. According to First Nations Film and Video Festival Incorporated site, the quote, mission of the festival is to advocate for and celebrate the works of Native American filmmakers, unquote. Co-director of First Nations Film and Video Festival Incorporated, Ernest Whiteman III, said that the video festival is dedicated to showcasing films by indigenous filmmakers and trying to promote and elevate their voice in media because we have such a small representation in overall popular media and the popular media that is there is usually of a historicized native people or it's very conglomerative. According to Whiteman III, the film festival tries to present films from across the country so they can represent a diverse amount of tribes, languages, and cultures. Native people aren't a monolith. They're not just one single race of people. They're like thousands and thousands of tribes. Many of the films were also locally produced, featuring a wide range of topics. The film Tiny was made with clay, like Timber and Coraline, while the film Work is Ceremony featured a dancing duet between a man and a woman. Evanston resident Phyllis Nickel watched the films with her husband. We were going to have gone to see Killers of the Flower Moon today, and then I saw this and I thought, you know, I can see Killers of the Flower Moon some other time, but I can't necessarily see this. I wasn't familiar with this. I really like film festivals, and so we just decided, hey, great opportunity for Sunday afternoon. I asked Nickel what her personal favorite film was. She had two answers. The first one is Paddle Tribal Waters, a short film focused on the largest dam removal project in history at Klamath River. A group of indigenous youth learned to whitewater kayak there. It's such a great story about their collaboration and the fact that they've been working all these years to get the Klamath River reclaimed. I thought that was really extremely well done as well. Her other favorite was Rabbit Stories, a Cherokee series. The festival played the first episode titled Granny Was an Outlaw. It had a lot of elements to it. It had the Cherokee language. It had the storytelling, what that means in indigenous cultures. And the artwork was fantastic. The dancing, you know, the various pieces of it I thought were really excellent. So I'm hoping to figure out where else we can get the rest of Rabbits to watch it. Looking ahead, the final day of the festival will be held on November 10th at the Music Box Theater in Chicago, where the film Hey Victor will be screened. The next festival will be held for 10 days at the beginning of May. Whiteman III said he wants to raise as much awareness about indigenous cultures as possible. 
I think that sometimes people tend to forget. I mean, if you look at all the people walking past, those are the people that we really need to reach when it comes to talking about indigenous cultures because they're not thinking about that. This film festival hopefully opens a door for people to start thinking about those things. From WNUR News, I'm Erica Schmidt. Moving on to arts and entertainment. On Friday, November 3rd, a and hosted its annual fall concert, Blowout. Lara Choi and Jessica Watts have the story. On Friday, a and hosted its annual Blowout concert featuring Justine Skye, Dayglo, and student opener DJ Kavi. We spoke with fans before the event to gauge their thoughts. I love Dayglo, so I was really, really excited. I'm feeling great. I'm excited. I didn't go to the one last year, so this is like new. Uh, I'm curious excited. to see what it's about. I think I like this a lot more because it's more like my kind of music. Students were particularly excited to hear this year's headliner, Dayglo. Who are you guys most excited to see? Uh, Dayglow, definitely. Definitely Dayglow, yeah. I've only heard of Dayglow, so I'm pretty excited for that. But when I saw Dayglow, I was like, oh my god, mind blown. I do feel like Dayglow's a little less well-known than Amine and Willow, but I think that it still appeals to like a wide enough niche of people out of the festival. I've actually seen Dayglow in concert already last year, so I was like, awesome. Like, I'm a huge fan of Dayglow. I've been to his concerts before, so when I saw that he was showing, I was like, this is going to be epic and fun. <laughs> The night started off with DJ Kavi's set to get students hyped for the event. We spoke with him about his experience. I felt really good. I mean, I think this is my biggest gig that I've done in terms of DJing, so I was a bit nervous. I felt very excited for the most part. And I've done like a lot of performing in the past. I came in as a theater major at Northwestern. I'm not currently one, but i um, done theater a lot in my in my life, and so it it felt very similar with the sensation of performing. Then Justine Sky took the stage to loud cheers from the audience. She also played her hit song Collide to end her set. Next, Dayglow took the stage to finish the show. To break up a set of high-energy songs, Dayglo played the Wii theme. Performed a mashup of Tears for Fears' Everybody Wants to Rule the World and Dayglo's own Run the World. And talked to the audience. Fuzzy brain from my dorm room the first week of school. I thought it was just gonna kind of exist and uh, I would go to college and I seriously never would have ever thought that I would have the opportunity to do any of this. Viral songs like Hot Rod and Can I Call You Tonight had the whole crowd dancing and singing along. And the verdict from performers? It was super fun. They took care of most of the, most of the things, so I only really had to worry about, you know, uh, preparing my set. And so that, that's a good thing. Hope you guys are having a good night. We sure are. All in all, Blowout was enjoyable for everyone involved. For WNUR News, 
This is Jessica Watts and Laura Choi. And now, time for oddities. Northwestern's archival collection is one of the biggest in the state. Brendan Praceman talked to the people who have helped maintain and add to it. The Northwestern archives are shrouded in mystery. They are a collection containing innumerable reams of paper and other objects across three different buildings. But how did Northwestern come about this vast trove of material? And who decides how it gets organized? I did a little digging to find out. Ben Joseph is the head of collection services, a position he's held since 2019. He's worked for the school in various archival capacities since 2009. Joseph and his team are responsible for sorting and organizing the wide ranges of material sent to the archives department. I lead a, a team of people who um, do a variety of things that uh, support collection management for our rare archival and unique uh, materials that we have at the library. So. Um, for instance, um, if you were um, in the room with me here right now, um, you would see there's a variety of active uh, processing projects going on right now. And so these would be the papers of alumni um, that we've received, uh, departmental records, um, uh, just a, a big variety of things. And so what we do, um, among other things, is we'll uh, engage in a process of archival arrangement and description. And what that means is uh, we're kind of preparing an archival collection uh, to be used by people, you know, like researchers in a reading room, um, and also, you know, preparing it so that it can uh, be used for things like digitization efforts, you know, that sort of thing. Whether or not the team keeps archival materials is based on a few factors. So like size, complexity, how close it aligns to our collecting policies, how useful it might be like in, you know, in a class. Is there a class somewhere that would be able to make use of this? Um, if there is, let's do everything we can to get it. If not, then you know, we probably don't need to um, devote a ton of resources to it. So, Joseph also says time required is a major factor in determining the acquisition of a collection. Even if organization is all someone does, it will still be a time-consuming process. So I would estimate it would probably be like, I don't know, seven or eight hours per linear foot uh, for us to do everything that we need to do with it. So I guess you, you extrapolate that out to um, number of linear feet, so 350 times seven or eight or something like that. It would give a rough count of the number of hours that it would take. Um, and then, yeah, so that would be like someone's position for, you know, it could take a year or something like that to, to, to do that work. One of the people who's done that work is Kevin Leonard. Leonard has been working in the archives for 43 years, a time period beginning when he was still a student at the university. The way in which he got the job that changed his life is still a story that brings a smile to his face. My handwriting was pretty good. My penmanship was pretty good. And in those days, before we were using computers and whatnot, a lot of the work in the archives was making lists by hand. And so the guy in charge of the archives took a liking to me, and he saw that my penmanship was decent, and his job was to make lists of collections that were coming in, inventorying them. Um, there was one, maybe there were two typewriters in the department at that time. With great penmanship needed, Leonard was an obvious choice for the job. So he put me to work in the archives while I was an undergraduate student, and I loved it. I loved it. 
doing that kind of work. I loved reading old mail and going through diaries and scrapbooks and old photographs and things like that. And um, if I say so myself, I did a good job. And a couple of years after graduating college, I was working downtown. He had an opening. He called me up and said, would you consider applying? And I did, and I've been here ever since. Over that time, Leonard has watched Northwestern's collection grow to staggering sizes. He estimates the full collections total roughly 25,000 linear feet across three different buildings. Among his proudest achievements is the near-complete collection of Northwestern student newspapers. Well, the publications are a terrific record of Northwestern as an institution and, uh, in effect, a logbook of the, of the actions and activities of Northwestern students and faculty and staff. It's, there's, there's probably no better single record of Northwestern than in the school newspaper. School publishing, newspaper publishing at Northwestern goes back to 1871. So the, the first newspaper was called the Tripod. A few years later, you get a second competing student newspaper called the Vedette. Uh, they found that the town wasn't big enough for the two of them. They merged into something called the Northwestern. And then with a, an uptick in the frequency of publication, the Northwestern became the Daily Northwestern. So the the heritage, the legacy, um, goes back um, well over a century, and that is the most complete record of what was going on on campus or with Northwestern people. Of course, in a digital age, a whole collection of newspapers isn't the most efficient solution. That's why what Leonard and his team did next was so important. We have been extraordinarily fortunate to work with a company called Newsbank. And through Newsbank and the very, very, um, the, the great generosity of Newsbank's founder, Dan Jones, who's a Northwestern, very proud Northwestern alumnus, we were able to digitize the school newspaper, the Daily Northwestern, the Northwestern, the Vedette, the Tripod. So we have a, a really good run from the beginning uh, basically to the present of digitized text. And this is a, a hugely used resource here. It, it is, in effect, an index to Northwestern's history. So if you want, like, pick your topic. Did, did, did this person come to Northwestern? Did this event happen at Northwestern? How did Northwestern react to this or that? You can search that and get your results um, almost instantaneously from this source. Both men have found tremendous joy in their jobs. If it's not the joy of a new find, it's the joy of being able to help others discover new information. Other collections that I uh, personally have experience with that I think are really cool um, are one is the Viola Spolin papers. Um, Spolin uh, is considered to be like, they, uh, they call her the godmother of American improvisational theater. Um, and so she's the person who's uh, credited with uh, creating improv, uh, but kind of as we know it. Um, and she did that through um, developing something that she called theater games. Uh, and so, like, if you've ever, ever watched, like, Whose Line Is It Anyway? or something, uh, you know, the host will have a card and, uh, and will read, like, okay, so you can only speak in you know, one-syllable words and you can only talk if you're standing on one foot. You know? And, you know, it's funny, but um, she created those, and she created them uh, in order to... Uh, help in her work with um, uh, students during uh, the uh, Works Progress Administration. It was called the Recreational Theater Project uh, back in the 30s. 
Um, and so, like, the collection that we have has documentation of her work in creating this stuff during the 1930s, which is really cool. Leonard says he loves all his collections equally, and his office bears that out. Next to his desk, there's a long table with sheaves of paper and other memorabilia stacked nearly a foot high. That includes, among other things, Wheaties boxes celebrating Northwestern's 1995 Rose Bowl appearance. While Leonard is personally a fan of paper over digitization, he acknowledges that the internet and computers have made his job much easier and more fulfilling. I was really worried when, when we first proposed digitizing the school newspaper. I did a lot of trade in the archives. A lot of our visitors were coming in just to, to go through newspapers. And my thought was, gee, if we have it digitized, they'll never come in to see me anymore. And I won't have customers. And it was just the opposite to that. It's the digitized newspaper allowed people to use other resources more readily and more effectively. So it's been a, an extraordinarily positive experience for me and for the department. Both men also enjoy the process of discovering archives of famous people of the past with Northwestern connections. So I have tried to chase after collections in areas where Northwestern has research of curricular strengths. So um, looking for alumni in, say, field of journalism. Northwestern has a very strong program in journalism. We have managed to acquire many collections from people who've been noteworthy reporters. Northwestern alumni have gone on to careers as noteworthy reporters, columnists, editors, etc. cetera. Um, business operations of, of journalism. Uh, Northwestern, for example, has strong programs in the performing arts. So we've collected a number of bodies of material from Northwestern alumni who have distinguished themselves in music or on stage, on television, and movies. Joseph recalls a specific collection that tells a story of more than just success. Uh, another one that I really like is uh, the Patricia Neal papers. Um, and I like that one because uh, it's just got some really great um, little artifacts in it. Uh, it has uh, two tickets uh, to the Academy Awards in It's Monday. You know what that means. It's time for the B-List. This week, 
Ella Barnes will talk about the NYC Marathon, the box office, the bear, and Missy Elliott's induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. List, your weekly roundup of celebrity mess and pop culture. This week, New York Marathon, a slow weekend at the box office, the bear renewed for season three, and Missy Elliott becomes the first female rapper inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Stick with us to learn more. The New York Marathon took place Sunday, November 5th. The 2023 New York City Marathon is the 52nd edition of the annual marathon race in New York City. A platinum label marathon, it is the last of six world marathon major events scheduled for 2023. Tamira Tola won the men's race in the New York City Marathon, breaking the all-time record for the course, finishing in 2 hours, 4 minutes, and 58 seconds. Helen O'Beary surged ahead of the competition in an uphill final stretch to win the women's title. She placed first for women with a time of 2 hours, 27 minutes, and 23 seconds. Next, the North American box office had one of its slowest weekends of the year, due in large part to Dune Part 2's absence from the lineup. Moviegoers had many other options to choose from. The video game adaptation Five Nights at Freddy's repeated its first place ranking, followed by Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour still going strong. Sofia Coppola's Priscilla expanded nationwide, and Oppenheimer returned to IMAX screens. Several well-received indies opened as well. But this was the weekend that Warner Bros. and Legendary's Dune Part 2 was supposed to open, before the sag after strike prompted many studios to shuffle release dates in anticipation of a lengthy dispute that has stopped movie stars from promoting their films. The Dune sequel starring Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya was pushed back to March 2024, and no major blockbusters moved in to take its November 3rd spot. Even with Taylor Swift, the heiress tour still bringing in Swifties to the multiplex, and prestige offerings including Morton Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon and Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, overall ticket sales are likely to be around $64 million for the weekend, making it one of the slowest of the year. Next, Carmi and Sid are heading back to the kitchen with FX on Hulu's The Bear being renewed for a third season. The news seemed inevitable, following the success of the first two seasons, with the first season alone snagging 13 Emmy nominations. Season 2, which concluded in June of this year, raked it in a 99% rating amongst critics with a 92% audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Finally, Grammy Award winner Missy Elliott was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last Friday, November 3rd. The hip-hop pioneer and fashion icon became the first ever female rapper to be inducted into the Hall of Fame and closed out the four-hour show. That's all for the B-List this week. Check in next Monday to hear what happened this week in pop culture. For WNUR News, I'm Ella Barnes. A look at the weather for tonight. It's in the low 60s and clear in Evanston right now. Bundle up because it's going to drop down to the 40s before a high of 50 tomorrow. Taking a look into the headlines, Northwestern College Democrats will be hosting former presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke as their fall speaker. The former congressman from El Paso, Texas, who unsuccessfully ran for Senate and Texas governor, will be speaking in the Norris Lewis Room on November 14th. Northwestern men's basketball team kicks off their season tonight against Binghamton. The Cats look to build off of last year's successful season, making it to March Madness for just the second time in school history. Three states are holding elections for governor this week, Mississippi, Kentucky, and Louisiana. A yacht sunk off the coast of Morocco last week after being attacked by orcas. 
The captain and crew were rescued, but the Polish-owned boat was lost near the Strait of Gibraltar. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter or X at WNUR News. You can listen to these and other WNUR News stories on our website, WNURnews.org. That's WNURnews.org. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our producer today is Erica Schmidt, and our reporters are Erica Schmidt, Jessica Watts, Lara Choi, Brendan Pressman, and Ella Barnes. From all of us here at WNUR News, thanks for listening. I'm Daniel Gross. Catch our next newscast on Wednesday, November 8th, 2023 at 6 p.m. Now, back to scheduled programming.